If you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Revelation 21, Revelation chapter 21. And over the past 18 weeks, we have unpacked attribute after attribute after attribute of our awesome and gracious God in a series that we called Behold, a God who is so awesome that we will never come to the bottom of him or any of his attributes, yet also a God um, that is so gracious that he continually reveals more and more and more of himself to us. And as we saw last week, the goal of this relationship with God is not just for us to know certain things about him, as if God only consists in parts or uh, facts to be known. No, we want to know him, and God is knowable, as we saw last week. And on this last Sunday of this series, what I want us to do is I want us to behold, I want us to look, I want us to ponder what eternity will be like for those of us who know God. So I want us to behold today our eternity with God. And unfortunately, I think that all of us bring with us misconceptions about heaven that have crippled us, meaning that we don't long for heaven like we should, or we don't desire heaven like we should. I think of when I was a teenager, we, heard, we, we would hear messages about Jesus coming, and our, my thought and many of our teenage thoughts were, well, I don't want Jesus to come now, I want to get married, and we think about that kind of thing, or you know, the older we get, it's like, well, I don't want Jesus to come now, I want to be able to retire and travel, or I don't want Jesus to come today, um, or tomorrow, I got plans. So here's the deal. We don't know much about heaven, but in our minds, it must not be better than marriage, sex, vacations, and whatever we have planned tomorrow. So that is our thought process when it comes um, to, to heaven. In fact, think about this. In the past month, how often have we spent thinking about heaven? In the last week, how much have we thought about it? If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you want to go to heaven when you die? There is no doubt in my mind that I would pray every hand in this room would go up. But if I were to ask you, how many of you want to go today? Um, most, uh, not as many hands would go up. We live by this thought process or maybe by the saying, um, everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. It's kind of the, the thought process that um, invades kind of the way we believe or the way that we we live, and, and why is this? Why is it that we spend little time thinking about heaven or we claim Christianity, but yet we really don't want to go to heaven? And I think there's so many different reasons. I think movies have taught us that heaven is a place that we'll be floating around on clouds playing harps and everyone's wearing white, leading us to conclude that heaven is just going to be a very boring place. In every culture, um, people tend to have these vivid ideas of what the afterlife is going to be like. In our culture, numerous people have claimed and even wrote books of dying, going to heaven, returning to earth, and then they write these books, and of course, we buy them up by the millions. Yet most of these books, get this, only focus on family members or the human benefits of heaven. And yet when Jesus is mentioned in these books, almost never... Do uh, the person who wrote the book act or, or respond like the Apostle John did in Revelation 1 when John says, When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. So people don't respond in that way. They talk about 
family and about this and about that. Think about this. Surely no one who has actually been to heaven would neglect to mention what Scripture shows to be the main focus of heaven, which is God. He's the main focus. Or, or think about it like this. If you spent the night, if you spent last night dining with a king, you wouldn't spend today talking about the place settings. You would be talking about what it was like to be in the presence of the king. Let me just say this, and I, um, you can give your own um, thoughts about books that people dying and coming back and writing about heaven, but let me just say this. All accounts of heaven and scripture that we have are visions, not someone who died, went to heaven, and came back. Four biblical authors had visions of, of heaven and wrote about it. Isaiah, Ezekiel, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, and every single one of them were prophetic visions. None of them were near-death experiences. And what, I'm, what I mean and what I'm trying to get at is this. If you want to learn more about heaven, don't go buy a book at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Open this book. Open this book. It will show you everything you need to know and could ever want to know about heaven. And then think about heaven in, in terms of different religions. So we know in Islam, heaven is a place where martyrs will receive their 72 virgins. Um, the Hindu heaven is nirvana, a place of endless peace and rest. Mormons say that heaven is a place of marriage and family activities. And then we get to the Christian view. And many, of course, believe that heaven is this angel on a cloud with a harp thing. Or even worse... Um, that heaven is just this glorified church service that never ends. No wonder we hold off as long as we can. No longer we say, I want to go there because it beats the alternative, but I just don't want to go today. In fact, think about this. One prominent Christian pastor even admitted this. Whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather cease to exist when I die. I can't stand the idea of an endless, boring existence. To me, heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated to spend eternity like that. So let me say this. If pastors are making confessions like that, what do you think many professing Christians are thinking when it comes to eternity? And here's what I'm saying. that The problem is to think that way as if heaven will be boring or whatever else it is that we come up with in our, our minds, is to fall short of what the Bible says. It's to, legend, it's to lessen excuse me, the treasure that the Bible points to. It's to, to diminish the prize um, of our Christian lives. In fact, let me say this. The fact that that notion would even enter our minds demonstrate, demonstrates the extent by which we have been deceived by the evil one. Satan has so deceived us into thinking that heaven is just a place that we get to go to, but we really don't want to. Oh, how far our thoughts have fallen from what the Word of God says. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we honor God's Word. We're going to read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. And I pray that during our time together today that God will lift up our thoughts concerning um, what um, our eternity will be like in his presence and that we would actually leave here wanting to be there more than when we walked in. So beginning at verse 1, it says this. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. <coughs> Excuse me. And I heard <clears throat> a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And let us pause there and say, praise God. Glory, hallelujah. Um, verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these things are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And Lord, teach us, God, teach us what we need to know concerning our eternity with you. Forgive us for where we have allowed Hollywood or books or other things, God, to lessen our view of what you have or will prepare for us. I just pray today for anyone in this room or who will be in this room that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Or just tune our hearts today with you. In Jesus' name. Amen, and you may be seated. So the picture that we get when we come to Revelation 21 is that of a, hear this, a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible says in the future that heaven will literally come down. So I want you to think about heaven in literally three historical contexts. The first picture that we get of heaven is in Genesis 1 and 2 in Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve literally walked with God. They talked with God. They experienced uninterrupted fellowship with God. That is a picture of what heaven will be in a world where sin had not yet entered. Then the second historical context of heaven is the intermediate heaven, where believers who die in Faith are presently right now with God. Yet they do not have yet their resurrected bodies because Christ has not yet returned. So all of our loved ones who died in the faith are, we believe and know, are presently with the Lord. They are with him. They don't have resurrected bodies yet because Christ has not yet returned. But they are with him, experiencing all the blessings of being with him. Then the third historical context is this, the new heaven and the new earth. So many don't realize, unfortunately, that the heaven that our loved ones are at now is not the future home of believers. The exact location of heaven now is unknown, but we are told that one day it will be on the new earth. So there, there are two words, of, um, or two words excuse me, for new in the Greek. The first is neos, which means brand new. And the second word is called kainos, which um, means remade. 
So when we read in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The word there is kainos. It means I saw a remade heaven and a remade earth. So what that means for us is that the new heaven and the new earth will not be something completely unfamiliar to us. When Jesus says he's making all things anew that we just read about, he must include mountains, Stars, rivers, oceans, animals, culture, art, music, architecture, recreation, occupations, all of those things. Our hope is that God will renew the earth and put it back to the way it should have been from the beginning and even now. um, N.T. Wright says that we can get a glimpse of this newness of what's coming by looking at the resurrection of Jesus. One day, God is going to do with the entire cosmos what he has already done with the resurrected Jesus. In other words, the new heaven and the new earth will look a lot like the old heaven and the old earth, minus the curse of sin, plus the ongoing, continual presence of God. Where creation's beauties will be heightened Creation's pleasures will be strengthened. Our limitations of sin will be removed altogether. I think of the words of Wayne Grudem who says, Heaven refers to two distinct places. The abode of believers who die in the present world and immediately join God in a place that scripture calls heaven. And the new earth which will include all the redeemed of all the ages after God completes his saving work. In fact, heaven may be defined as follows. The place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. Or if you want a good definition of heaven, heaven is the abode of God. Heaven is where God dwells. So with the remaining time that we have this morning, I want us to dive into three truths related to our eternity with God. And I pray that these truths will Challenge us as well as encourage us, making us long for what God has in store for us. So the first truth I want us to see this morning is this. There are decisions that seal our eternity. So there are decisions that seal our eternity. The reality is that the word of God teaches very clearly that after death, there are two options. Um, Only two options. There is either eternal life or eternal death, and that is for every person. And Revelation 21 gives us a picture of God's blessing and God's judgment. And it makes sense when we remember that God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. He gets the first word in all of history when he says, let there be. And he gets the last word in all of history. And we read about it in verse 6. He says, it is done. It is done. He gets the last word. And here's what we know. That those who revered the king here on this earth will experience inexpressible and eternal joy. So those who revered King Jesus will experience inexpressible and eternal joy. We read about this in in verse 6. And it tells us, kind of moving forward into verse 7, that the one who conquers will have this heritage. The one who thirsts, who's thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life. In verse 6. <coughs> so, so every single person in this room 
And all of history will one day meet God as the Omega, as the end. And for those who came to him through Jesus Christ, for those who thirsted for Christ, for those who overcame, according to, to verse 7, in Christ, who, who did that, there will be eternal joy. Think of it like this. Saving faith, the belief, the belief that leads us to eternal life, is the thirsting of the soul for satisfaction that only Jesus can give. If you prefer the beverages of this world to the life-giving water that God gives, you will never know eternal life. You'll never know it. Here, here's what we know. No one in their right mind would prefer hell over heaven. But many prefer anything over God. Many prefer anything over, over God. And let me just say this, and let me just make this very clear. Anyone who does not make much of the thought of spending eternity with God is not fit for heaven. If your idea of heaven, if, if, you're, if the thought of spending forever with God doesn't just um, do something in your, your heart, then you aren't fit for it. You don't know what God desires for you to know. Which leads us to the second truth, which is that, think about this, those who revere the king will have inexpressible and eternal joy, but unfortunately those who reject the king will experience irreversible and eternal justice. Look at verse 8. Such a sad scripture. But the cowardly, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So for those who reject the king, instead of eternal joy, they will get eternal justice. And there's a, a few thoughts pertaining to verse 8. The first thought is that the Apostle John is drawing our attention to the church. It's what he does throughout the book of, of Revelation to people who profess to be Christians, but yet who compromised and compromised and compromised in this world. Those who professed faith in Jesus, but yet their lives showed no faith in Jesus. People who, the second things got tough, they cowardly turned away from Christ and turned to the world, proving that they were never part of Christ. And this is what John is trying to point out. And another thought is this, that the unsaved are pictured here in their overall unbelief. And what I mean by that is this, when we read these words and we, we read about cowardly and murderers and all of these things, Bob Wilkins says it's a mistake to think that this verse is describing the way the unsaved behave here and now. Rather, it concerns the eternal sinfulness of unbelievers. And if that doesn't make any sense, just follow with me. In John 8, 24, Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You'll die in your sins. Therefore, unbelievers die in a state of sinfulness. Forever they will remain sinners in their sin. So the point here that John is making is that because unbelievers upon death are sealed permanently as, as those who are unjustified, they will remain forever as sinners in the sight of a holy God. So forever God will see them in their sin. Praise God, forever God will see us in Jesus. He will ever, forever see us. Every single person in this room, every single person on this planet, every single person in all of history has 
faced or will face only uh, one of only two choices that we get. Either we revere Jesus, receiving him for who he is, or we reject Jesus. And I think of the words of R.C. Sproul that says, right now counts forever. Right now counts forever. What you do with Jesus right now on this earth, it counts forever. There's no do-overs in eternity. What we do with Jesus now counts forever. And here's what I know. Ultimately, no one who is in heaven with God will be able to look at God and say, I did this. We will be there because of what he did. In the same way, no one in hell will ever be able to look at God and say, you did this. No, they will be there because they willfully rejected Jesus Christ. There are decisions that seal our eternity. But then secondly, there are delights that sweeten our eternity. There are delights that sweeten our eternity. This is what awaits believers in Christ. Get this, what awaits us? We will be with him. We'll be with him. Listen to this. In Revelation 21, he will dwell with them. God himself will be with them as their God. We'll be in a place where death is replaced by life, where night is replaced by light, where corruption is replaced by purity, where the curse is replaced by healing and blessings. And what does that mean for us? It means, look at verse 4. Here's what it means for us. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. For those that are going to experience that, there should at least be something. I expect at least one amen. Um, uh, there's someone somewhere that one day is looking forward to that. Apparently they're not in this room, but they're somewhere looking forward to what's coming. Think about this, brothers. Don't miss this. No pain. No pain means no chronic illness, means no aching joints. It means no physical suffering forever. No mourning or crying means no depression, no fear, no worry, no anxiety, no stress, no misunderstandings, no relational conflicts, no more emergency room visits, no more intensive care units, no more hospice care. No more pharmacies, no more children's hospitals, no more funeral homes. No more homicide detectives, no more grief counselors, no more pain managers. Brothers and sisters, God has already saved us from the punishment of sin. Of sin. But one day, he will save us from the pain, he will save us from the power, and he will save us from the presence of sin. We will be removed from the presence of sin. This is the final work of salvation. One day, the hands that were pierced for us, that we will see, those hands will wipe away every tear from our eyes. J.R.R. Tolkien uses one of the best phrases saying that on that final day, all the sad things on earth will come untrue. On that day, all the sad things on earth will come untrue. And come untrue doesn't mean we forget all about them altogether, but that the bad effects of our lives will turn into good effects. That heaven will not merely end our pain. Somehow, supernaturally, it will mend our pain. 
It will mend our pain. I love the account of Joni Erickson Tata. How many of you have ever, ever heard of her? I love her. I love reading about her. She was, she's a quadriplegic who broke her neck, I'm going to get this out, as a teenager in a diving accident. She's now 69 years old. If you um, have been keeping up with her, she is um, in the hospital right now suffering with um, breast cancer, pneumonia, um, really struggling, asking for prayer. But God used this accident that happened as a teenager to bring her back to himself. In one of her books, she writes these words, and I love this. She's lived all of her life in a wheelchair, and just listen to her words. I hope in some way that I can take my wheelchair to heaven. With my new glorified body, I will stand up from that wheelchair on resurrected legs. And I will be next to the Lord Jesus. I will feel those nail prints in his hands. And I will say, thank you, Jesus. He will know I meant it because he will recognize me from how hard I leaned on him during my sufferings. And then I will say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you were right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. And then she says this, I do not think I would ever have known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that, of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And then she writes this, Now if you like you can send that thing off to hell. <laughs> All the sad things of this earth will immediately come untrue. There's an amazing side note here. In the first two chapters of Genesis, Satan is not mentioned. He is not there. And in the last two chapters of Revelation, Satan is not mentioned. He is not there. He is gone, and the eternal presence of God is our new reality. We will be with him, the lights that sweeten our eternity. And then lastly, the third truth is this. There are descriptions that summarize our eternity. There are descriptions that summarize our eternity. And this description is that our new reality, the new heaven and the new earth will be a place <coughs> excuse me, of wonder. It will be a place of worship. It will be a place of work. Let me just explain that to you. Heaven will be a place of wonder. In our eternity with God, we will never be bored in his presence. We'll never, not for one second in all of eternity, will we be bored in the presence of God. You know what I believe will never happen in heaven? We'll never yawn in heaven. We'll never yawn in heaven. We'll never be bored in his presence in heaven. Pastor Sam Storms writes these words, We will constantly be more amazed with God, more in love with God, and thus ever more relishing his presence and our relationship with him, our experience of God will never reach its consummation. It will deepen and develop. It will intensify and amplify. It will unfold and increase, and it will do that forever and ever. It's a place of wonder. We will stand amazed at God and in his presence forever, but heaven will also be a place of worship. And when we think of that, Here's what our mind automatically goes to. We think worship, we think singing. So automatically we think um, heaven is just a continual church service and we're in the choir. And that's not what it means. Worship doesn't always 
In our, in our minds, worship means singing. In God's heart and mind, worship means we live all of our lives in his presence for his glory. That's the thing that we miss. Your worship is not just what you do one hour on Sunday. Worship, your worship is what you do with your life every day of your life with every breath that you take. Do you live it for the glory of God or do you live it for the glory of yourself? One day in heaven will be a place of worship because everything that we do will be done in the act of worship. We'll truly be worshiping him in all that we do. And heaven will also be, hear, hear this, this new heaven and new earth will be a place of work. It'll be a place of work. Revelation 7 says that before the throne of God, they serve him day and night in the temple. Revelation 22, 3 at the very end says that his servants will worship him, or other versions say his servants will serve him. And think with me real quick to Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, work was a part of God's original creation. So work, Adam and Eve, their work wasn't added after the curse. Their work was given to them before the curse. So it was what Adam and Eve were already doing. They were already cultivating God's creation. They were taking care of God's creation. They were working um, in, in direct correlation with God's creation. Which means that when God restores this earth, work will be a part of the new creation. Except, here's the good news, it won't be like it is here. Your work there won't be filled with worry. It won't be filled with toil. It won't be filled with um, struggle. It won't be filled with all of these attitudes of being suppressed and held down. God will assign us fulfilling tasks. For all of eternity that fit who he has made us to be. So don't immediately think of whatever you do here, you're going to do there. Here's what I know. No doctors there. No lawyers there. No funeral directors there. No police there. No insurance salesmen there. And bad luck for me, no evangelists there because everyone's saved. So this picture is some of us are going to be out of jobs and God's going to make us to do new things but what kind of work will we do in heaven maybe you'll build a cabinet with joseph of nazareth maybe you'll tend sheep with moses maybe you'll drive chariots with elijah and be the uber service of heaven maybe you'll write songs with david or go fishing with peter or so with dorcas or build a tent with paul I, I don't know every detail of what our work will be like but i do know this it will be perfectly and satisfyingly good it will be perfectly and satisfyingly good. If we knew nothing more than that heaven was God's dwelling place, it would be more than enough to make us long to be there. Therefore, we long for heaven because we long for God. And God made us to long for him. Think about the words of C.S. Lewis. He says, do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would not that fact strongly suggest that they had not been or were not destined to be aquatic creatures? We long to step out of the sea of time onto the land of eternity. Doesn't that show that we were created for eternity? If I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the best argument is that I was created for another world. If I find in myself, a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, 
the best argument is that I was created for another world. I want to end with a story. I've told this before, but I'm going to kind of add a little to it. In 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped um, into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Islands, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California, more than 22-mile 22 mile, 22 swim. The weather was, was foggy and cold, and uh, she could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her, but still she swam. For 15 hours straight, she swam. I'm just getting a cramp just thinking about that. And she begged to be taken out of the water along the way. And her mother in a boat alongside told her, no, you're close. You're close, Florence. You can make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out of the water. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than a half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said these words, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Let me ask you a question this morning. Can, can we not relate to those words? We live our lives in a fog. A fog of trouble, a fog of worry, a fog of doubt, a fog of depression, health problems, unemployment, financial uncertainty, strained relationships, we lose loved ones. All of these things create a fog around us. These things make it difficult for us to see what's in front of us or what lies ahead for us. Sometimes we feel like giving up because we don't have the strength to stay afloat any longer. Also, in our journey, we're tempted to stop short of our final destination, that the enemy provides little islands along our journey, and we're tempted just to go to one of them and just spend our lives there. And this is where the people of God throughout the ages had a source of strength and had a source of perspective that for some reason we don't talk much about today. You know what their source of strength was? You know what their source of perspective was? Heaven. Heaven. That they would encourage each other saying, this world is not our home. That this isn't it. This isn't your best life now. No, your best life is coming your best life is ahead of you. There is a beautiful, magnificent shoreline that exists for us, even through the fog, even in spite of all the earthly temptations. It is there, and it's waiting for us. Let me finish the story of Florence Chadwick. Two months later, she tried again. This time, it was foggy, it was cold yet again, but this time, she made it. And when asked what the difference was, she said, the first time all I could see was the fog. The second time I kept a mental image of the shoreline in my mind, and I knew it was there. It was there. Brothers and sisters, maybe the fog in our lives is keeping us from seeing the shoreline. Yet we pick up this book, and we open this book, and this book says, it's there. It is there. It is there. Let's not live our lives saying, if only I could see the shore, I, I would have made it. No, it's there. It's there. Let's get a mental picture of it. Let's long for it with our hearts. Let's, stop short of, let's not stop short of it. Let's go on. For, for the Christians, we have a shore, and we have um, the shore is a person. The shore is a place. It is, the person is Jesus. The place is, is heaven. Let us give our lives 
knowing what awaits us is better than we could ever imagine. If all we know about it is that God is there, that should make us long for it even more. He is there. And there is coming a day where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more sickness. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more death. Praise God. Don't we want that? God is saying, you do. <laughs> you do want that. Desire that because God has that for us. You can go ahead and stand to your feet. We're going to call the musicians forward as we enter into this time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever it is that God is telling you to do that you would, you would do it. And let's pray together. Father, we come before you now. and Lord, we thank you for the reality of your word that tells us that you have prepared a place for us. And Jesus, you said that if you have prepared a place for us, you promise that you will come again. That where you are there, we may be also. We thank you for the future that one day we will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth. Free from sin, free from the curse. Where you are dwelling with us, we are dwelling with you. We are experiencing a perfect world as it was meant to be. God, we long for that day. God, I pray for anyone in this room or that will be in this room that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. That you would show them, God, how much they need you. And that they would call upon the name of Jesus. They would call upon Jesus and be saved. But for others in this room, God, maybe there are some that all we see today is the fog. And maybe that's what we are saying. If only... If only we could see the shoreline, we'd make it. But all we see is the fog. And God, I pray that you would just burn in our hearts that reality that the shore is there. It is there. It is awaiting us. You are there. You are awaiting us. God, may we long for that. This world is not our home. This world is not our home. Thank you for all that you have in store for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.